Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Frico, our senior content producer at Booktopia, um, and I'm joined today by Sarah McDooling, our kids and YA category manager. And our guest today is the writer and editor Emily J. Brooks, um, who is coming to talk to us about her new book, uh, The First Move. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. It's um, it's my first podcast ever, so I'm really really yes. Oh my god, that's exciting. We are on it. I'm losing my podcast virginity to you all. Oh, oh what a special day. <laughs> well, it's funny because we usually we usually are the first stop on the publicity road for a lot of authors when everything is back to normal and in the, we're actually in the office. Um, so it's it feels nice to get that little throwback and be the first yeah. stop for someone. Yeah. I had one. Um, I've only had one other interview and that was for a print mm. um, article. So... Yeah, you were my second and my first podcast, so it's um, it's fun hearing about because l- most people haven't read the book, so it's fun chatting to people who have um, who have read the book and hearing what they liked and didn't like and what connected with them and everything yeah. else. Well, this is a book about dating, but it's also a book about feminism and equality. Mm. So I feel like there's a lot of buttons to be pushed here. Yes, there are. <laughs> I haven't made this easy for myself. Where well, dating, dating, yeah. Oh, sorry. Dating <laughs> is just one guess. of those things that's not easy, though. So, I guess. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where did the idea for this book first come from? So, uh, the concept of the book has evolved a lot over the last few years. I, I started it at 25, I'm 28 now. Um, but the reason I felt compelled to write this book was I had a question that I needed to answer, and that was whether successful women faced a penalty in romance. Um, and that question developed in my head over a few years uh, because of where I first worked in my career. So um, I moved to Sydney at 20 to be the assistant to the editor-in-chief of the Australian Women's Weekly. And I noticed over my time there that when I spoke to anyone um, about my job and they worked out what I did, they would hit me with two questions. And it was always, um, is your boss married? Does she have kids? So it seemed that both, both women and men, young and old, were asking me these same questions every time about my boss. So I kind of worked out that both women and men didn't seem to think that success and love could coexist for women. Um, And then over a few years, I collected more friends in Sydney and they were all very successful and everyone seemed to be struggling in their dating life. Um, But the women who weren't as successful or um, kind of adopted more traditional and passive kind of behaviours in their life, they seem to be okay in romance. Uh, And then I stumbled upon some research that said that uh, successful women did, in fact, face a penalty. Um, And then so I just went into a deep hole of research, um, (laughs) talking to a lot of people. And over the course of writing this book, I've worked out that... um, Successful women have historically faced a huge penalty um, and I call that 
the dateability penalty, and that is if uh, it's fairly simple when the, um, a man is less likely to settle down with a woman more educated or with a higher status or who earns more than him. Um, and that's something women have faced for a really long time, but we're seeing some really positive changes over the last couple of decades. And so men are shifting, but women have developed this kind of shitty social reflex in that we've learned that to appear more attractive in romance, we talk ourselves and our success down. So um, we do this to try to get a guy, but that doesn't set us up well for when we've got the guy and we're trying to negotiate daily compromise um, and demand that our career be seen as equal to his. Um, so I kind of, I wanted to write a book that raised women's awareness around equality um, and the importance of it in their relationships. Um, so they would read it before they got into a relationship. Um, and so we weren't, so that we don't need to have those conversations that um, older women are having now that are married with three kids um, and they're trying to navigate the juggle um, and compromise and negotiation. Um, yeah, so I just, I wanted to start having that conversation earlier with young women to set us up better. Hmm. That's, yeah, that is kind There's of like sobering It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> You've got me thinking so much, but I, I know. like. <laughs> it's weird, like we see that behavior so young as well, like. <laughs> To go way back to like 2010, my high school boyfriend wouldn't tell me his ATAR because I beat him. And it's a moment of shocked, like, oh my God, I, I get that now. I can see that actually in my life. Yeah, so yeah. I think women have felt this for so long that they couldn't articulate what was happening. Mm. So I wanted to articulate it for them. And it was funny, the interview I had yesterday, the um, female interviewer said that she, when she had a big career moment, her boyfriend dumped her and that was a few months ago. So it's still prevalent, um, but it's, it's changing. And um, in terms of marriage formation, we're seeing some really positive shifts. Hmm. Yeah, can we talk about the, the four kinds of love and and teammate love in particular because that was mm. a that's a concept in this book that really struck me yeah um as being very interesting yeah um so i wanted to kind of explore the the history of love because i think uh and stephanie Kuntz, who is a professor uh working in the in the family and marriage space in the u.s who i i had a big discussion with she talks about this a lot but we're so stuck on the nuclear family and the wife mm. defense husband breadwinner uh wife homemaker two kids we're so stuck on that that model and we think that that's normal whereas throughout history we've gone through many different stages of love and marriage actually had nothing to do with love in the beginning. Um, it was 
a way uh, it was a way um, to get in-laws really um, so it was a political and economic and, and social move um, to increase your workforce to form better business deals um, and so it really had nothing to do with the two people in it it was a political <laughs> So, um, and then over time, we reached good enough love. Um, now, I do need to look back over this because I'm not <laughs> going to articulate it properly. Um, but we had good enough love where that was the kind of 1950s housewife era where you still, you needed a husband to survive because you, couldn't, you often couldn't move out of home um, until you were married. You couldn't buy your own home. You uh, couldn't even have a credit card. You couldn't even have a credit card. You needed a husband to co-sign everything. So it literally was for your survival to find a husband. Um, and then with the second wave of feminism, everything changed and, and women could enter the workforce in roles greater than the secretary and, and nurse. Um, so women started going, oh, well, what about if I find a husband that I actually love? And that's where we entered that soulmate love era. Um, and we're in an era now that I call teammate love. And I don't think teammate love is adopted by the masses. Um, but it's something that we're striving for and it's something that we're getting closer to. And the soulmate love we were, era that we were in was based purely on the love you feel with another person. Um, and I think men were happy for their wives to have a career, um, but it was almost like this. They tolerated it. They tolerated it, yes. Or it was the secondary career. Like, mm. Yeah, it always came in second. And I think that teammate love um, is, an, is a type of love based less, based less on gendered compromise. Um, but a love where a, a man actually really respects his wife's or girlfriend's or partner's career so much um, that he's willing to take the back seat sometimes. Um, you used this excellent metaphor of like passing the ball of opportunity. I uh, really liked that. Um, yeah, yeah, that was cool. Oh, thank you. It's a good uh, way to think about it. Yeah, because yeah, like you are a team, and you can't have the ball all the time. Mm. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to pass it back and forth. But the, the problem being is that we've lived for so long in a time where if the guy passes the ball to the woman. He is perceived by society, like, not necessarily by women, but he perceives himself and maybe other men perceive him as having a loss of masculinity or a loss of power. Yeah. I was reading the other day that, like, I can't remember the specific, um, like, what the, um, the statistic, in, but, like, apparently men's requests for paternity leave get turned down at a much higher rate than women's. They do. Yeah. They do, and they're less tolerated. Um, yeah. So I think one of the good things um, to come out of 
what I learned in this book is that teammate love, which is really a, a love based on equality between the two people in the relationship, we know now that that's more satisfying for both parties, for women and men, um, which wasn't always the case, which is what I found interesting. So when I look yeah. at my parents, um, they have quite a, a traditional relationship, although mum works now. Um, but it wasn't the most satisfying relationship to have an equal relationship, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and I think that's in part because more people are having equal relationships now, more people are adopting it and more people are thinking it's okay. But that's, yeah, that um, it's just really going to happen over time and we have to be patient but we have, have to keep pushing forward and having these conversations so that, um, so that we do move forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we, you describe it as being like the Prince Harry and Meghan Markle kind of love. Yes. Um, but like, <laughs> a lot has happened since I wrote that. <laughs> I know, but like, I'm just looking at two of them like I want them to go off and be happy together forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I that I passage of... though, can I say? Um, I was because when I was reading the book, I found. The whole opening is quite interesting because um, of, you know, who you start, who you use as, as an example to start with to explain teammate love. Mm-hmm. And then you have a passage where you talk about the Meghan Markle and you, um, you also mention some other people in there. And, like, I don't even know if I should say it because it might spoil it, but there's a very funny joke involving a, like, prominent um, personality. <laughs> to say. Should I just leave it there? <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, basically I really like this idea of teammate love um and you've said that this book is for younger women or like younger people in general so like yeah. but a lot of people's introduction to dating or like their first step you could say mm. or first port of call is like dating apps and Tinder yeah. and Hinge, Bumble, what have you. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's kind of the worst kind of platform for this type of like brutal, honest, upfront honesty about who you are and like. And what, what choice yes. do you have? Like, yeah, I have exactly. no dating life without those apps. Yeah, this is my point. Like, <laughs> how do you see, Emily, like people taking on this idea of teammate love and looking for teammate love? on an app that's just kind of so very shallow. And so transactional. Yeah, and performative and, like... And everyone's forced way into... I feel when I'm on there that everyone's forced into a hyper-traditional gender role. Yeah. And also the performance of appearance and how um, Mm. vital that is. Um, Look, I think it's not a matter of sending a message and stating this is exactly what I want. I think these conversations do um, do happen down the track, but not two years in. They happen on the second, third day. Um, mm. And it, it's not about um, projecting what you want in this kind of masculine way. It's just not shrinking yourself and who you are. Um, I think dating apps 
dating apps are, are so tricky um, mm. and I'm, yeah, I'm not a huge fan, but I also understand that this is the way the world's moving. Um, especially during a pandemic. Especially during a pandemic. <laughs> but I also do think the pandemic is um, shrinking that kind of choice paradox everyone had. I don't know mm. about, about you both and your friends, but it seems like... Um, I live in, in Bondi, which um, is fairly transient anyway, but it does seem like people are wanting to form partnerships more than they ever have um, because this moment's teaching us all that we do need our people around us um, mm. and we do yeah. need partnerships. So I, I don't know whether that's me being hopeful but I, I hope there's less fuckboys around after this. <laughs> I like it. I like that. I hope it's true too. <laughs> uh, but the other thing with, and I think I mentioned it in the book in the first move chapter, um, but dating apps, because they're so transactional, they're actually, there is one positive with them for women in that in Bumble, with Bumble in particular, we have to make the first move. Uh, but there's studies that show that, when women feel that they have more control, uh, when they feel that they have more power, they're more willing to make the first move. And if more and more women are willing to do that, we have more case studies of it working um, and then it's it's normalised further. So, um, so that's a positive of dating apps. Um, yeah, in particular Bumble. In particular Bumble, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if I have answered your question or if I have the answer, but mm. um, I think dating teaches us all patience um, <laughs> and it's easy to get fed up. Um, mm. I just find it's really easy to get bitter and, like, oh, that's yeah. not good for yourself because, yeah. you know, you don't want it, to, it's a drain on you to feel that way. But it also, you're not presenting your real best self to someone when they're meeting the most bitter, jaded version of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so also with dating, I think it's a balance of if you're feeling bitter, step out for a bit. Take a yeah. month off. Take two months off. Um, and I also think for women and men, actually, when you're looking for it so hard, it's it's rarely going to come because um, I just think energetically you're holding on to it too tightly. Um, but you do, but you do have to put yourself out there because women are also often don't put themselves. It's a really fine balance, isn't it, between not getting you know obsessive um, and letting the the hunt for you know the right person rule your life. And or just giving up, like there's a. It's hard to find that middle ground, yeah. and I think it is. You're right. A lot about you know taking a breather and and not, and then you know, but then always like putting your toe back in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and just doing doing that dance a little bit. Like yeah. I was notoriously bad at putting myself out there. Um, mm, same. Yes, I I will. Well, of, of one mind on that, I think. <laughs> yeah, 
I was always like, oh, look, if I'm gonna go out, I'd rather just go out with my girlfriends and, and <laughs> pizza. Um, and I actually, I met my boyfriend through, it was a case of through work, but also um, in terms of me following up, it was a, it was my roommate and this was, I think it was 2016 and um, I was working at the Huffington Post then and Malcolm Turnbull had called a double disillusion election and so I was covering the election and by the end of it she was like, you are so boring, can you <laughs> the guy that asked you out this month? Um, she's like and by the way text that dude uh, and I text that dude and um, he's been my boyfriend for four years now so um, imagine if you hadn't sent the text exactly <laughs> um, so yeah we do have to put ourselves out there um, and yeah maybe take a month and just say I'm just going to say yes to every every safe situation um, <laughs> um, and then if you get fed up, take, in, take two months off. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, we do, I think it pays to treat it like a, like a game sometimes in terms of a game with yourself um, and just get a little bit playful with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's how you build confidence, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And also you meet great people along the way like I've got a girlfriend who's got a great attitude on this and sh and sh she was she has a view that no one has this attitude of a lot of people have the attitude of I want to find um the perfect person for me but I don't want to date and someone <laughs> says I want to be prime minister of Australia but I don't want to go into politics but, yeah <laughs> So I don't want to be a this political staffer. Um, yeah, so we do actually have to do some work in order to find it, but not mm. the point where it drives us insane. Yeah, and, and then so when it comes to those dating, like that attitude to dating, there's also a hell of a lot of rules I think that have carried over. That like the title of your book makes you think of like the first move, like who makes the first move. We're still clinging to these very eighties. Yeah. dating rules like sex in the city type stuff and that's that's what I think we've got to we have to change that because yeah. I think when I whenever I overthink anything I mess it up oh, literally every day of my life yeah <laughs> <laughs> so with um these rules we just have to let them go and in terms of making the first move um I reference Caitlin Moran's uh, quote on her definition of feminism, which is basically we shouldn't aspire to be groundbreakingly excellent. We should aspire to have power and also be completely average because there's a lot of average men out there with power. Yeah. And in terms of making the first move, we should make it and aspire to be terrible at it sometimes. Like, yeah. We should get used to failing sometimes um, because because men do it. Men men fail. Men have asked me out, and I've I've been completely rude. Um, <laughs> so we've just kind of got to get used to that. Um, but I think the problem for women is our power and our assertiveness has always 
uh, been seen in a bad light in romance, whereas for men, it's always it's been a point. Yeah. do. Yeah. Mm. They've always, the traditional thing is that the man is powerful and in charge and dominant mm-hmm. and so that, the, and there's pressure on a man to be that way. Yes. So yes. If, it, it would, if you're fighting every day to be that um, against other men and then you're dating a woman who, like, professionally is more successful than you, I guess, like, you know, I don't have much sympathy for guys who can't take it, but you yeah. can kind of understand. Yeah. You can get, like, how society has put them in a position, you know, the same way that it's women in a position that just makes it really difficult to be equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Patriarch is a double-edged sword. I've heard that quote so many times. Yeah. And but why so does it have it to be up everyone. to the women to fix it? I <laughs> Yeah, I think that the reason it has to be up to women to fix it, or maybe not fix it, but I think the reason it has to be up to us to have the first move, start changing it, yeah. Well, is that we're bothered by it more because we don't benefit from it. Um, Yeah. And men, yeah, men... uh, also face a lot of trouble through patriarchal societies, but they also benefit from it as well. Mm. So yeah. They've kind of got the good of, and the bad of it and we've just got the shit end of the stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So um, I think we're the only ones that are going to change it. So we yeah. have to wait until enough good men come along and, and help us change more of it. Yeah, that's true. And also I like that you draw a connection between like our picking our life partner and the quality of our life as we age. Like yeah. I think I just read that you in the book that like women earn up like half the amount of superannuation that men do. The gender mm-hmm. pay gap is still at 14% or something. Yeah. And like our salaries peak at 31 on average. Yeah. Very terrifying to think about. Yeah. Um, so like <laughs> I think, do you think we need to be thinking, like, I know there's always that stereotype of women being, like, planning the whole relationship from the first date, but, like, should we be thinking long-term from the get-go? Like, when we think we found someone, you know? Yeah, I think, I think you should be thinking long-term in terms of uh, personality traits and and views. I don't think you need to be thinking long term in terms of like when's he going to drop a knee. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, I think people are different. I've always Mm. things long term. I I've I sometimes see it as pointless. Otherwise, I don't know why dating someone you want a future with. but, yeah, I think we should be thinking long-term. And um, But about traits, the thing mm. I do want this book to come across as is, like, you don't – we don't need to be aspiring for the guy that's earning $300,000 a year and wears nice suits and has a nice house. Like, that's mm. not teammate love. Teammate love is the guy that respects you and your career so much that he will be willing to compromise on his sometimes. Um, 
Yeah, mm. so I think we should be thinking about how he values women and what he thinks about equality uh, mm. early on and also just his behaviour um, in terms of equality. Um, so what would be red flags? <laughs> oh, you want to open that can of worms? <laughs> I feel like I could rattle off a, a few dozen, but I'm just interested. In, say, say your friend has come to you and is like, I've just started dating this person. You know, what would be your advice to, like, properly gauge those qualities in a man and, like, what would be some signs that maybe he doesn't have those qualities? Well, I think a big sign, and just in the book, that if, um, if a man doesn't like you making the first move, he's not going prob- probably not going to have pro- progressive views of women and his relationship. Um, and I think I talk about sex. If, if he's not willing, if he's not um, comfortable with you being assertive or you uh, voicing your thoughts in the bedroom, that's a concern. Um, yeah. If he doesn't value your career, that's a concern. Um, but that's all very, I wouldn't say that's easy to pick up on by, like, the third date. Yeah. Um, but I also think you go on gut, and the point of this book is for women to own who they are and what they want, and some women want to be a wife and sometimes they want to take the back seat in their career and sometimes they want three kids or sometimes they want all of that and to work. So um, it depends on every couple. Um, and the well, back- and it depends on whether those that role, like being um, staying at home and looking after the kids and taking on that whole burden of the household, mm-hmm. whether your partner respects that as much as yes. he would respect his job. Yeah. And I think the the benefit of balancing that between each other is when you're both doing it, you have greater empathy for the task, for the doing Mm. the task. So if a man's helping around the house, or not, I don't want to use the word word helping, when a man is doing the unpaid work and engaging in the emotional labour, um, he has a greater empathy and understanding of uh, how annoying it is when you have to do it. Yeah, if you never pass the ball, you're never going to know how hard it is on the other side. No. And so how do you fully really respect what your partner is doing? It goes, like, on both sides of that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and also, what was I going to say? Um, also in terms of women's work is always undervalued. So if men engage in housework and unpaid work and emotional labour, it will instantly be seen as as, uh, more valuable or more highly valued in the community Mm. because that's the structural um, pressures that we kind of operate within. Yeah, and I think it's slowly happening because you know people are having these conversations and people are writing books like the first move Mm. um but you just i i can never gauge when you're in a stage of something happening you can never gauge how much further there is to go um like 
which generation will will eventually have like a predominant teammate love dynamic like when will it become the norm well that's yeah that's the thing and that that um depends on how enthusiastically we all adopt it but i think um the first step is women not shrinking themselves and their desires at the start of the relationship because if we if we do that we set the norm and the pattern for the way that the relationships going to continue operating as we get older um so if you suddenly wake up at 37 and go oh i've lost my career um and have a complete tantrum <laughs> be like what where is this coming from <laughs> you haven't voiced it so you've got to voice it and men naturally voice it because that's what they've been told to do um, whereas we have been told not to voice it because it's unlikable, because we shouldn't, because it's the way things are. Um, but we have to, if we're going to get closer to getting what we want, we have to. And that might mean you, you lose some men along the way early on, but what you're doing by claiming what you want and who you are in front of men is you're sifting out the dodgy men that won't want a progressive relationship. So it's doing the work for you, even if it hurts sometimes. Yeah. So that, I hope that answered that. It's a very, it's a very big um, overarching strategy. So I don't think this book is... Um, dealing with the, what's the wording for it? I think the, a lot of the, the nuance in strategies of other dating books, um, this book is different to that. This book is a very overarching look at how we change the gender dynamics mm. in, in dating and in relationships. But it, well, it's a guide on how to get the guy. It's a it's a guide on working out what guy you want and yeah. yourself along the way. I think that's what's so cool about it. Normally yeah. books deal with dating are telling you how how to how mm. to get the guy. And this one is like, who do you want to be and what kind of guy do you want to have? Like Yeah. That's know. exactly what I wanted to do with it. So <laughs> that came across. <laughs> it was also um, it was also a little bit of a, a ruse to to get some women who may not be thinking about feminism so heavily um, and equality so heavily to start thinking about it and how it impacts the way they operate in the world. Um, so I intentionally spoke about women's relationship with ageing um, and women's relationship with beauty um, and the superannuation gap and the gender pay gap um, and told stories of Gloria Steinem and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Oprah and Maya Angelou. I intentionally did all that um, because I wanted to raise some consciousness um, around feminism to a group that may not uh, be thinking about it day to day. A sneak attack. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, we should probably wrap it up soon, but I guess uh, now that you've released this book, The First Move, what's up next for you, Emily? What's up next? Um, I am currently taking a few weeks off just to uh, focus on promoting it, um, promoting the book. Um, and I have a... I have a newsletter called Side Note, which explores the kind of rhythms of modern life um, and selfhood a little bit. So I, I'd say my work kind of sits at the intersection of selfhood and feminism. Um, so I write that newsletter every week. It comes out every Friday morning uh, because I need a deadline to keep my life in order. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after that, uh, in August, I'm just doing a little bit of consulting and um, and thinking about writing another book, but we'll see how this one goes. Is it too early to talk about what that book? <laughs> I have I have some ideas, um, but yes, I'm keeping them close to my chest. Yeah, fair enough. It, fair enough. Yeah, in a in a similar realm to um, where my kind of where my niche sits. Uh, but I had a lot of fun doing this and um, I know how to do it now. Whereas when you write your first one, you don't know how to do it. You're just muddling your way through it, which is why it takes a lot of edits. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been, it's been really fun. Well, it's also been great to chat to you today. This has been yeah. a really interesting combo, actually. Thank you. Thank you I, a lot of fun. More podcasts, please. <laughs> I'm not, I don't find myself particularly sound bitey, so I prefer a long conversation. So this has been very fun. Oh. But I don't think I've solved either of your love lives, so I apologise. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> upset about that. I was really thinking I'd come out the back of this podcast with my love life sold. I will be posting there. It's a social commentary, not a dating guide. <laughs> whatever you want from Monday. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting to us and I'm glad you had fun because I think we both had a lot of fun as well. Yes. Thank you. And if you're listening at home, you can grab your copy of The First Move by Emily J. Brooks from booktopia.com.au or your local indie bookstore. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au